Amen. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The name of Jesus. Hallowed be the name of Jesus. Appreciate that thought. Great song. Great job. Get in your Bible if you would to Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3. Everything, of course, in the Bible is inspired and preserved for us through the providential care of God through the centuries. By the way, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one near you. It's got a hard black cover. We will be in page 558. Page 558, Jeremiah chapter 3. And though most of us understand that the New Testament is easier to understand and for the most part easier to apply to us today, all of the Bible is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that all of us might be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And though, of course, while we understand the New Testament is easier in most cases to understand um, everything, is good. There are mountain peaks, though, amongst all of the Word of God, places where the instruction is especially clear, especially important, especially applicable, and that is what we've been doing on Sunday mornings for a little while, and Lord willing, for quite a while longer in the book of Isaiah and the book of Jeremiah and the New Testament Gospel of John. Last Sunday morning, we talked about it not being a bump in the road. Uh, it's a bumpy road. Yeah, we saw how God prepared Jeremiah for life and ministry by telling him that people would fight against him, even as he fulfilled God's plan and purpose for his life and spoke the truth to people in an effort to help them. We saw how Jesus did the same thing for his apostles. He prepared them for the difficulty and opposition they would face as they represent him in a world that rejects him. And God prepared Jeremiah and Christ uh, because people who don't understand that fulfilling your purpose and following Christ, if you are under the false idea that it's going to be easy, chances are you'll go back. But if you understand, like God made Jeremiah understand and Christ made his disciples understand that fulfilling our purpose and following him is not supposed to be easy, it helps us stay on course. And we rejoiced that God not only promised to always be with Jeremiah, uh, Christ also promised his disciples that he would never leave us nor forsake us, even though it is difficult at times to follow him. And we close rejoicing that there will always be some people who will hear and heed the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and go along with us. This morning, because you have already turned there, you understand we're returning to the book of Jeremiah, the words and story of a tender-hearted, clear speaker of truth. Now, those who know little about our Creator misunderstand why He gave us clear commandments and executes judgment. They wrongly think, and most of the world thinks this, that the commandments of God are somehow oppressive, or the commandments of God somehow take the fun out of life. I hope you understand that everything gets messed up when man does things his own way. Man doing things his own way with only his conscience as a guide is what caused the world to be filled with violence and corruption when God judged the world through a flood. You and I today, all we have to do is look around in the news and compare what's going on in our country to what went on when our country was more lawful 
to understand that man with only his conscience as his guide instead of an authority enforcing just laws understand it makes things a mess makes them unsafe God's laws are always for man's good you may disagree but someday you will agree that no individual or family is better off doing things their own way. God's judgments are also for man's good. The world is never a better place when evil people think they can do what they want without consequence. The world is also not a better place when backslidden, willfully defiant believers in Jesus think they can do so without consequence. Which brings up a good question. Why did Jeremiah preach so hard against the sins of the people of his day? Here's something he said. This is Jeremiah 16. Thus saith the Lord concerning the sons and concerning the daughters. They shall die of grievous deaths. They shall not be lamented. Neither shall they be buried, but they shall be as dung upon the face of the earth. Why would he preach something like that? But why would Jesus of Nazareth call the Pharisees blind guides, fools, hypocrites, whited sepulchers, and a generation of vipers? Why didn't Jesus just go around and say to everyone, hey, hey man, do your own thing, God loves you. Why was that not his message? I mean, why would Jesus in public say to, Pe to Peter, uh, get behind me, Satan, Thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Why would he say that in public? That's hard. Why would Jesus say to two grieving disciples on the road to Emmaus, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken? I mean, why? Why would any biblical preacher who remains true to the Savior who called them preach about hell with everlasting fire? Why would any preacher who stays true to the Savior, who called them in the Word of God that, you and, uh, that, that they are commanded to preach and teach, why would they continually warn about judgment to come and about every one of us giving an account of ourselves to God? Why would they say things like it's appointed unto men once to die after this is a judgment? Why do that? Is it just to belittle people? To grind human beings down with guilt and shame? Why say hard things? By the way, some well-intentioned but mistaken people have stopped saying hard things. And it doesn't honor God, nor does, does it help those who hear them. I mean, why give 10 unbreakable moral commandments from Mount Sinai? Why are there more than 1,000 commandments in the New Testament? I mean, people make a big deal about Moses' law being able to be broken down into 613 distinct commandments, and it can be. I mean, why are there more than a thousand commandments in the New Testament? I mean, why all the hard preaching? Why, why all the warnings of hell and judgment? That's a good question. There's a story told about a family sitting in church together on a Sunday evening service, and the pastor was preaching on the prodigal son and the famous parable of the faithful father, and the preacher went into great detail about the pain the prodigal son had caused the father. He went into great detail about the destruction sin had brought in the life 
of the rebellious son. He spoke in great deal about the pain caused in the family and to the parents of the prodigal son's life choices. But when he began to speak about the prodigal son coming to himself in the pig pen and coming home to his father, the preacher, asked a rhetorical question. He says, and what do you suppose the father whispered in the ear of the prodigal son when he ran to him and embraced him? The preacher paused. A little boy looked over at his dad and he said, you're grounded. And though we're not told directly what the father did whisper in the prodigal's ear, it was far more likely, welcome home, I'm glad you repented and returned. If you're able to stand, if you would stand, please, in honor of the word of God, the title of my thought this morning is return while you can. Return while you can. Jeremiah chapter three, verse 11. The Lord said unto me, the backsliding Israel hath justified herself more than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord. I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you, for I am merciful, saith the Lord. I'll not keep anger forever. Only acknowledge thine iniquity that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God and hast scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice, saith the Lord. Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I'm married unto you, and I'll take you one of a city, two of a family, I'll bring it to Zion, and I'll give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. Thank you. you. Might be seated. There are three key events, and if you don't understand these three key events, you'll never understand the Old Testament. Now, you might be able to take places and make application of something the Old Testament says, but you will never understand the Old Testament. The first key event is the giving of the law through Moses. If you don't understand that there was a time when God gave all the moral commandments and formed a nation and uh, gave them moral commandments and judicial laws, if you don't understand that, you'll never understand the Old Testament was something before, during, or after that time. A second key event in the Old Testament that if you don't understand it and you're not aware of, you'll never understand the Old Testament is the division of Israel into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. If you don't understand whether a prophet is speaking uh, to the northern kingdom or southern kingdom or whether something is before or after that event, you'll never understand the Old Testament. The third key Old Testament event without which you'll never understand the Old Testament is the captivity of the southern kingdom of Judah into Babylon. The Babylonians came and they besieged the city of Jerusalem for 18 months and the famine was so sore in the land that they resorted to cannibalism within the city. It was that time just before and during and just after that Jeremiah spoke. Now, while Jeremiah, for the most part, spoke to the southern kingdom of Judah, here he's going to address the northern king of Israel because God had a word for them, and he does that in verses 11 and 12. It says, And the Lord said unto me, The backsliding Israel hath justified herself more than treacherous Judah. 
Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord. Now not cause mine anger to fall upon you, for I am merciful, saith the Lord. Now not keep anger forever. Now most of the Jews in the northern kingdom had long been relocated by the nation of Assyria about a hundred years earlier when they took them captive. But the Jews that remained and other people from other nations at the Assyria uh, brought in and placed there, they had mingled together and, and eventually became the group of the New Testament that are called the Samaritans. That's who he's speaking to here. And we see that God promises them that if they will return from their backsliding, that he will give them mercy. By the way, mercy means God is not giving you all the negative consequences you deserve. We all need mercy. See, Israel had a lot of problems. They had idolatry problems. They rejected God and, and don't have time to go into that. But understand, uh, at the end of verse 11, it, it says there, it says, Israel hath justified herself more than treacherous Judah. It is never a good thing to justify yourself instead of justify God. See, when you justify yourself, what you do is you blame, you blame your behavior on the people around you. You blame your life choices on the environment in which you live. If you are justifying yourself, you blame who you are and who you're not on everybody, but you refuse to take any personal responsibility for who you are. And God said, listen, you guys have justified yourself, and you're even just as bad or worse than treacherous Judah. I'm glad when we read and know about the judgment of God that fell in the northern kingdom that God here openly invites them to return to him. By the way, if you're here this morning and God's judgment has fallen in your life, return to the Lord. God didn't bring judgment into your life to grind you to powder. Listen, God can grind anybody to powder anytime he wants. God's purpose in bringing judgment is so that people would return to him. I hope you'll do that. By the way, I was reminded again this week, I hope you're reading through your Bible in, in 2024. I, I would to God, everybody here uh, minimally read through the New Testament this year, and I, I would love it if the vast majority of people read, read the whole Bible. But I was reminded this week again, reading through how that God decides what it takes to appease him. And then people decide whether they will offer God what he says appeases me. You and I don't get to choose both. We don't get to decide what God wants. God decides that. You and I only get to decide whether we will offer God what he has asked for or not. By the way, I hope you return to the Lord. God then, he wants them to acknowledge that their, sins, that their sins are against him and their disobedience is against him. They need to turn back. And he does that in verses 13 and the first part of verse 14. He says, only acknowledge thine iniquity, that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God and hast scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice, saith the Lord. Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord. He tells them to return in 11 and 12. He tells them to turn in verses 13 and 14. By the way, ever know anybody that refuses to ever admit they're wrong? Ever know anybody that never apologizes? There's probably people in this room, 
And if your spouse was, was being honest, they would say, do you know what? My spouse almost never apologizes. There, there, there's probably teenagers here and parents here who would say, do you know what? My parent never apologizes or my, my teenager never apologizes. Listen, it is never a good thing when you refuse to acknowledge your transgressions. Never. See, understand, when you and I transgress against someone, it is up to us to apologize to that person. And when you and I transgress in any manner, whether it is against someone or not against someone, our transgressions are all against God, and he wants us to confess them to receive forgiveness. Again, God is pointing out their sins, so they would turn back to him. If you're starting to get the idea that God points out sins and flaws and says hard things so people would turn back to him, so that they would find mercy instead of staying separated from God. If you're starting to see that, you're getting the right idea. See, God had and has a permanent relationship with the nation of Israel. He made an unbreakable covenant with them. In the second half of verse 14, he says, For I am married unto you. And I'll take you one of a city and two of a family, and I'll bring you to Zion. Uh, by the way, before we go on, understand Zion uh, is a hill in Jerusalem on which the Solomon's temple sat. Now, other times it is speaking about the new Jerusalem, uh, but here, most specifically, that hill in Jerusalem with the temple. In verse 15, he says, You do that, and I will give you pastors according to mine heart which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. And I think most of us today understand Israel is living under the judgment of God. They have defied His commandments. They have rejected uh, their Messiah today. Uh, they're in their land, uh, but they're living in rebellion against God. Thankfully, some individual Jews have uh, repented and put their faith in Jesus, and they are today our brothers and sisters in Christ. But here God promises to take special care of individuals from the northern kingdom who would repent and return to him by giving them the kind of spiritual leaders who would feed them and teach them the truth and give them understanding. By the way, God makes that same promise to anybody today. If you repent and return to God, he'll raise up spiritual leaders in your life who will give you truth and understanding. By the way, if you're a spiritual leader, it's not just my role. If you're a spiritual leader of any sort in the Lord's church here, I mean, it is your job, if you're going to be any kind of a pastor, a shepherd after God's own heart, to give those who look to you truth and understanding. Here's the thing. There's no record of any large-scale repentance or revival in the northern kingdom of Israel. I mean, hopefully some individuals responded. But the fact of the matter is, is that people haven't changed. And people don't want to hear they're going the wrong direction. People don't want to hear they're away from God. By the way, these are religious people. They, they don't want to hear they're away from God, even though they're religious. They, they don't want to hear, you need to repent and return. Because repent and return means you're going in the wrong direction, and you need to be somewhere other than where you are now. Most people want to blame their sins on spiritual leaders in their past. 
Most people want to blame their lack of commitment to Christ and the things of God on believers they know who have failed. Most people, they want to blame their life choices on the dark culture in which we live, the environment God chose to place you in in your home and family, or things that have happened in your past. Listen, my heart goes out to anybody who has had people do terrible things to them in their past. My heart really does go out to you. Uh, my heart goes out to you if you have been under the influence of spiritual leaders who misused you or mistreated you or didn't teach you properly. My heart goes out to you if you were exposed to people who call themselves Christians and they're drunkards and they're immoral and they act in such an ungodly way you think to yourself, the world world is better than them. If that's all believing is, I don't want anything to do it. Uh, my heart goes out to you, but I want you to understand there are no flaws in Jesus. And no person will ever stand in the judgment of God and say, well, I didn't do this because someone else, you won't do that. Repent. Return. But this morning, I'm not preaching to the Samaritans or Judah. And neither America nor the church has any part in the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm speaking to you this morning and pointing out that God says hard things, hoping we would repent and return to him. I read something else earlier in Jeremiah 14. Jeremiah said this, people shall be cast into the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword, and they shall have none to bury them, them, their wives, nor their sons, nor their daughters, for I'll pour their wickedness upon them. Why would Jeremiah say that? Why would God send him to say that? I'll tell you why. The great hope of God and of anybody who has a heart at all for what God's heart is for, wants people to repent and return to God. Listen, if someone doesn't know they need to repent and change directions, they never will. By the way, that's the problem in the average church in America. If people don't know they need to repent and change directions, they will never repent and return to God. By the way, that's the biggest problem in whole with our culture. They are basically just doing what is right in their own eyes. They've picked morality that's right in their own eyes. They've picked a priority system that's right in their own eyes. They've picked a personality for God that's right in their own eyes. They've decided how they're going to run their marriage and how they're going to handle their children, and they give zero thought to what God has said about those things. And somebody needs to say the truth. See, the great hope of Christ and of every pastor and speaking any hard things is so people would repent and return to God. And so this morning, what I'd like to do for a few minutes is just make some observations and applications of God speaking hard things so that people would repent and return to him. Please first go in your Bible to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Say, Brother Waller, why do we start in Jeremiah and flee to the New Testament? Oh, by the way, I don't think it's ever bad to flee to the cross. I don't think it's ever bad to flee to Jesus. 
who did not contradict the Old Testament, but fulfilled the Old Testament. Which gets us to our first thing. Here's number one. Jesus told Nicodemus he needed to be born again to see the kingdom of God. Jesus told Nicodemus he needed to be born again to see the kingdom of God. Notice in this conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, by the way, before we go on, remember, these thous and thines, you, you and yours, they're in your Bible on purpose. That's not the way they spoke in 1611. When the pronoun starts with T, thee, thou, thine, it's singular. When a pronoun starts with Y, you, you, yours, it's plural. This is a personal message to Nicodemus. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4, Nicodemus saying to him, how? Notice he doesn't say why. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now Jesus is going to make clear to him he's not talking about physical birth. Verse 5, Jesus answered, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water, that's a physical birth, and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's physical birth. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That's the spiritual birth. Verse 7, marvel not that I said unto thee, personally, ye must be born again. A commandment for every human being. Ye must be born again. That Nicodemus personally need to hear, ye must be born again. By the way, Nicodemus was highly successful. He's educated. He's very religious. And Jesus told him that he must be born again. In fact, Jesus told him in verse 3 he couldn't even see the kingdom of God if he wasn't born again. Do you know what Nicodemus would have thought? He would have thought that because he was a Jew, he already was going to see the kingdom of God. Do you know what Nicodemus would have thought more than any other Jew because he was religious and successful and a leader in his religion? He would have thought, wow, if anybody's going to see the kingdom of God, it's going to be me. And Jesus said, no. Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you won't see that kingdom. I mean, think about how hard that was to hear. Listen, Nicodemus would have been just like every other religious person on our planet today who would have thought that they deserved to see the kingdom of God because of their religion. They would have thought they deserved to see the kingdom of God because he had a, was a good person. He would have thought that. Imagine how this would have been hard to hear and how it would have set him back. Most people think that they'll be okay when they die because of their religion or their success in life, just like Nicodemus. By the way, Jesus didn't tell Nicodemus this to hurt him. He told him this because he needed to hear it. Listen, every sensible person wants to be part of the kingdom of God today. Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost because when you're saved, the Spirit of God lives in you and produces those in you when you yield to Him. Every sensible person wants that. Every sensible person wants to see the kingdom of God in the future kingdom when Jesus Christ reigns from Jerusalem over the entire earth in justice and righteousness and peace and those who've suffered with Him will reign with Him. Everybody who's sensible wants to hear that and Jesus says, you want to see that? You want to be a part of that you must be born again by the way i said the same thing to you this morning not to hurt you but to help you ye must be born again you must humble yourself before god confess yourself a guilty sinner and call upon the name of the lord to forgive you and save you no Catholic church, Baptist church, or church of any sort has tickets 
to the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ has the keys. It doesn't matter if you don't think you need to be born again. I don't need that. It doesn't matter if someone who seems to have authority said, oh, you don't need that. It doesn't matter if you wrongly think you being sprinkled as an infant or immersed as a teenager or adult was that. Ye must be born again. Physical birth, born of the water. And spiritual birth, born of the spirit. Because that which is of flesh is flesh, and that which is of the spirit is spirit. You need to be born again this morning. Jesus said this to help Nicodemus. That's the same reason I'm saying it. Listen, the clarity and narrowness of Christ's statement was to move Nicodemus to repent and return. Have you been born again? I'm not asking if you have some special spiritual experience of healing. I'm not asking you if in some desperate moment in your life God was there for you. I'm asking, listen, God is good and does things like that for people of all sorts. I'm asking, can you go back in your life and find an unmistakable moment when you humbled yourself to call on Christ and he changed your heart? I didn't ask if you read a prayer off a card. I didn't ask if you repeated something someone told you to repeat. There's nothing wrong with reading something off a card or repeating something, but there's something very wrong with not coming from your heart and your heart not being changed. Though every true believer isn't changed in the same obvious ways, Every true believer does have a changed heart. Do you need to come to Jesus this morning? But it isn't just that Jesus told Nicodemus he needed to be born again to motivate him to repent and to turn to Christ to see the kingdom of God go. Next, please, in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. See, Brother Wally, why do you most of the time, why do you make us turn around and all over the place in our Bible? Uh, several reasons. Number one, it helps you stay involved. Number two, it makes your Bible more personal to you. And number three, it helps us all understand that all the Bible really just fits together. And that nobody has any business of just taking one segment and acting like that's all there is. Here's the second thing. God says things to believers that are hard to hear so they would return to him from their backsliding. God told Nicodemus to be born again because he needed to be saved. God says hard things to believers so they would return to him. Notice what Paul says to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I fed you with milk, not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it. Neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? I mean, that's pretty hard talk. I mean, listen, he basically just said to the church there, <laughs> uh, you're carnal, you're babies, you can't take deep spiritual things. Among you is filled with envy and strife 
you got problems. Uh, now listen, if I just looked at this crowd today and just said that to you, there's people here you'd take great offense to that. It's a hard thing to hear, even though it is true in some cases. He didn't say, you know, this was the church. Uh, Paul later rebuked them for their morality and disrespecting their bodies as God's temple in chapter 6. He rebuked them in chapter 11 for misusing the Lord's Supper. He rebuked them in chapter 12 for misusing their spiritual gifts. He rebuked them in chapter 15 for tolerating false doctrine about the resurrection. Uh, Listen, do you suppose all the Corinthians just sit back and say, wow, thank you. Listen, Paul didn't do this to leave them just riddled with guilt. This wasn't the whole story. This is just preparation for the story. All the tough talk, that was not the end game. That that was the means to an end, that they would repent and return. Listen, the Bible doesn't speak about the certainty of how to leave people riddled with guilt. The Bible doesn't speak about the certainty of judgment to leave people riddled with guilt. The Bible does not call us to faithful service to take up our cross and follow Christ to to leave us riddled with guilt with our failures. God does that so that you and I would repent and return to him. Our God wants his people living with his joy, his peace, and a satisfaction that he wants to give that you cannot find anywhere else. Any parent who refuses to teach their child what God defines as right and wrong and refuses to discipline them for what they do that's wrong and reward them for what they do that's right, understand you are hurting your child. You say, well, not me. I do that because I love them. No, you do that because you misdefine love. You do that because you're selfish. If what we did as parents was about our children rather than us and our own insecurities and our own lack of courage and our own lack of knowledge, then we would handle our children like that. I'll say it for myself. Amen. By the way, I pray God would raise up spiritual leaders all over our country who would have the courage to just to tell people what's true and what's false, not to hurt them, but so that they would repent and return to God. I liked, uh, I was recently listening to someone talk about parenting, and they were having problems with one of their children, and here's what this parent told them. They said, I think this child was 18 or 19, they said, listen, Things are not going to keep going the way they are. This is a list of everything you need to change. And if you don't want to change them, I'll buy you a plane ticket to anywhere in the country you want to go. But if you're going to stay here, these things need to change. Uh, by the way, that is easy to say and hard to do. I mean, that, that's the kind of thing people say, well, that's how you handle your kids, but I'm not going to handle mine that way. This was somebody with his own kids. You know what? Thank God for parents with courage. Do you need to rethink the way you consider anyone trying to correct you? (laughs) 
You need to stop considering people your adversary who try to get you to follow Christ and obey him. Do you need to stop blaming everyone and everything else for the choices you make? Do you need to come home this morning to God before you or your family end up in the pig pen of life? Listen, I got great news for you. God wants you to come home. It's why he brings our sins to our attention. And I just, I plead with you in Christ that be reconciled to God. Come home to the Lord. Return to the Savior. But it's not just that God says things to believers that are hard to hear to call us back from our backsliding. Lastly, this morning, turn up a few pages to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Here's the third thing. There's a difference in conviction from God and guilt from Satan and our flesh. Remember, 1 Corinthians is filled with Paul saying hard things to correct them and calling them home. Notice in 2 Corinthians, about a year later, in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9, he says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, you know, from his letter, but that you sorrowed to repentance. Or you were made sorrow after a godly sort, by the way, being sorrow after a godly sort moves you to repentance, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. See, Paul wrote all those things, and it hurt him, and it made him sorry, it hurt him. But they said, you know what? He's right. Do you know why people do that? And why people don't do that? Humility. Humility. If you are not willing to hear reproof or honestly face hard things about whether they're true or not, listen, you're proud. The effect it had in verse 11 on the Corinthians, it said, for behold, the self-same thing. He sorrowed after a godly sort. He said, what carefulness it wrought in you. Uh, what clearing of yourself. What indignation. Yet what fear. What vehement desire. Yet what zeal. Yet what revenge. In all things you've approved yourself to be clear in this matter. You see, they heard this stuff. They were humble. And it made them careful about what they do. It made them zealous to fix their life. They, they weren't mad at the messenger. Do you know when people come to me and, and I say, you know, what about this? And you know what their first words almost are, always are to me? Who told you? Do you realize it is not the messenger that matters most? It is the truthfulness of the message. And to the glory of God, these Corinthian believers, though they had all these issues, they had a humble heart before God. And when God brought their faults and flaws and sins up to them, they said, you know what? I didn't really like to hear it. It hurt me. It made me sorry. But you know what? I... I'm going to fix my life. I'm going to return to the Savior who changed me. No one in the Scripture, Jesus, Jeremiah, Paul, anybody who rightly represents God, they don't bring hard things to us to hurt us. They bring them to us. to Shape us and mold us and to get us to return to our God. You know, maybe this morning it's time that some of you stop being angry at the messenger who pointed out your sins and failure and returned to the Savior. Maybe it's time to return to the Father who unconditionally loves you. 
If you're saved, He's put the righteousness of Christ in your account. If you're saved, He's not imputing your sins to you. And in a heavenly account, listen, God sees you in Christ. Come home. Stop believing the lie that you can never be better. Stop believing the lie that you've gone too far. Stop believing the lie that whatever someone did or failed to do is a good reason for you to not be what God wants you to be. Oh, please. Come home. Stop staying away from the church. Stop staying away from the Bible. Stop resenting godly correction. And know that our Father wants us home. Amen? If you'd quietly stand.